Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you. Today we are continuing our summer series on the book of Jonah. I want to welcome all of us uh, here at Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those uh, meeting from one of our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to say hello to our online viewers as well. Pastor Kent introduced our series last weekend, and he talked about how Prophet Jonah very clearly heard God's voice to go to Nineveh, but decided to go in the other direction. And Jonah soon found out, outrunning God is never a good option. I want to continue where Kent left, and today we will look at uh, the remaining verses in uh, Jonah chapter 1. But let me first give you a recap. Jonah is considered to be a minor prophet, not because his message was minor, but the book is shorter in length compared to the major prophets. So the book of Jonah has uh, just four chapters and 48 verses in all. Jonah served as a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Let me tell you, the prophetic calling is not easy. A prophet cannot improvise on his message to make it more appealing or palatable. His job is to merely relay the message that God was placing in his heart. Prophetic messages were countercultural and intended to bring correction. As a result, prophets were not very popular. As one of my seminary profs used to say, pastors have to worry about pension plans. Prophets don't because they don't live that long. You know, it is challenging enough to be a prophet to God's people in Israel. Imagine being a prophet to the pagans in Nineveh. And yet, this is precisely what God was calling Jonah to do, to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, a wicked city known for its evil, and bring God's word to its inhabitants. Jonah is deliberately being moved from familiar to unfamiliar settings, totally outside of his safe Jewish comfort zone. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, Arise, wake up Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and bring a message of repentance. Jonah's immediate response was to go in the exact opposite direction. He went towards Tarshish, which in the ancient world was considered to be the end of the world. You cannot go any farther than that in their opinion. So take a look at this map here. God asked Jonah to go 550 miles east, and he goes 2,500 miles west towards Spain. So that's Jonah's way of saying, God, find somebody else to do this job. I tell you, Jonah must be one of the funniest books in the Bible. It's filled with humor. Jonah himself is a dramatic character. And do you know who Jonah resembles? If you're familiar with the Pink Panther series, the primary character in the movie is a French detective named Inspector Clouseau. Inspector Clouseau does everything wrong, but it all turns out right eventually. 
and he becomes a successful detective. Jonah is like Israel's Inspector Clouseau. He does everything wrong and yet emerges as the most successful evangelist in the Old Testament. He tries to run away from God and accidentally converts a ship full of heathen sailors. He gets swallowed by a great fish and he finally remembers, oh, it's time to pray. He preaches the shortest sermon of all. Forty more days and Nineveh will perish and revival breaks out and the entire city is converted. And after all this, Jonah is not celebrating. He is sulking and he even tells God he is angry enough to die because a plant had withered. Almost everything we learn about Jonah, we learn by way of negative example. Jonah specialized in the fine art of messing things up. And that's why he resembles not just Inspector Clouseau, he resembles me and he resembles you. God, on his part, was not going to let his rebellious prophet who was on the run, he wasn't going to let go of him. But he gives Jonah a wake-up call in order to bring him back in alignment with his plans for Jonah's life. Today we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 6 to 17. So I'm going to ask all of us to stand, if you're able, as we read from God's Word. Jonah chapter 1, verses 6 to 17. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, Why should, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Lord, we affirm the inspiration of your word that your word is powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. Now, God, we ask that you will personalize this message that we read, that it will speak to our hearts, 
that your word will come alive. And just as we sang this morning, awaken our soul, that we will be sensitive to you and in alignment with your plans for our life. So minister to us, Lord, today in the power of your spirit. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This incident was on the news a few years ago. A resident at an extended care facility in British Columbia died, and the staff did what they usually do. They placed a call to the hospital, who then sent a driver to pick up the deceased woman. The driver dutifully transported an elderly woman to the hospital morgue. Unfortunately, the driver failed to check the wristband for identification and carried off the wrong woman. So the 87-year-old resident he wheeled away was simply sleeping. And she was totally oblivious of what was going on. Meanwhile, an employee at the extended care facility noticed the deceased resident was still in her room, but her living roommate had disappeared. So she alerted the hospital of the mix-up, and they brought the sleeping lady back so she could wake up in her own room instead of a morgue. <laughs> you know, it is possible to drift to a deep, blissful sleep, totally unaware of what is happening around you, like some of you right now. <laughs> now, just checking to see if you're awake. <laughs> you know, in this passage, we see Jonah the prophet is sound asleep, both literally and spiritually, and God is trying his best to wake him up. Jonah is on a mission to escape God's call for his life. And when he comes to the port, he finds a ship waiting to leave for Tarshish. You know, when you want to run away from God, there will always be a ship ready to take you in the opposite direction. You don't have to work hard to find one. One of the key phrases in our text is in the beginning of uh, verse 4, but the Lord. Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. It was the Lord who hurled the wind, like he's pitching in a baseball game. It's the same word being used of the sailors hurling the cargo into the waters in order to lighten the ship. This was no ordinary storm. It was a violent tempest that threatened even the experienced sailors. Whenever we run away from God, we experience such but the Lord moments in our life. You know, that tells us that we have a God who is actively at work behind the scenes of our life, and he is in control of all our circumstances. And God, in his grace, takes the initiative to get our attention. He's not just passive when we are determined to go in the wrong direction, because he's the good shepherd who comes after his lost sheep. And sometimes the wake-up calls come through the storms of life, in order to get our attention. Now hear me, not all life storms are from God. Let me be clear in stating that 
Not every adversity that you face in your life is a result of your personal disobedience. Some of the storms arise merely because we live in a fallen world. But when a Christian deliberately disobeys the Lord, when you flatly refuse to do God's will and you're defiant in your attitude towards God, then expect bad weather. God is not going to let you run too far before he gets your attention. His wake-up calls will come inevitably. And when God sends a storm, it is not an act of punishment. It is a loving act of correction to simply get your attention and wake you up. That's why the storms of life can become means of salvation in God's hands. The storm that Jonah faced was no accident. You can clearly see the intent of God behind that storm. This is God's loving response to Jonah's staunch rebellion. The sailors were expert seafarers. Jonah was not. It is interesting that Jonah actually had the courage to get onto a ship for such a long voyage because the Israelites were not seafarers. They hated the sea. But Jonah was so bent on rebelling against God that he simply didn't care. As soon as he got into the ship, he went down to the lowest part of the vessel, below the deck, and started to sleep. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually says Jonah started to snore. So Jonah is in a deep state of hibernation in the midst of a furious storm, totally unmindful of the chaos and pandemonium surrounding the ship. The storm was so violent that it was threatening to break the ship apart, and the one responsible for it was fast asleep. The expert sailors were panicking so much that these tough guys with tattoos were melting in fear, crying out to their gods, hoping for some kind of a divine deliverance, while Jonah, the prophet of God, remained sleeping. How could Jonah sleep in the middle of a violent tempest? You know, our baby girl, Aviva, is now six months old. With three other boys in the house, you know, it always feels like we're in the middle of a mild storm. There are times the intensity level just goes high, way too high. And Aviva has learned to sleep through all the noise and volume because she's figured that there's no other way. And we are eternally grateful for that. <laughs> I tell you, she's going to be one tough girl. In the same way, Jonah, completely unmindful of his surroundings, carried on with his sleep. When the captain of the ship went down to the deck and found Jonah sleeping, he's quite annoyed. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah is so in love with the horizontal position. And God is constantly trying to wake him up. And this time, God's wake-up call comes through the captain of the ship. 
And you see the use of words here? The captain of the ship uses the same words that God used earlier when the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise. Arise. Get up. Wake up, you sleeper. And you see the height of irony here. Pagan sailors were crying to their gods for rescue, but the person who knew the one true God was sound asleep. Heathens were actively trying to save themselves from God's judgment. The prophet was passive. Unbelievers were praying to their gods. The man of God was silent. The sailors believed in gods who had no power to still the raging sea, and the only one in the ship who knew about the God who has power over the wind and the waves was snoozing below the deck. Jonah's sleep serves as a metaphor for his spiritual condition. What is tragic is not the fact that Jonah was sleeping through a storm, The fact that he would sleep when the lives of so many were at stake, that is unacceptable. As we apply this to our current context, there's a striking parallel that I see. For we live in a chaotic world. This is a world of unrest, battered by furious storms threatening to break our world apart. And we have people who don't know the one true God crying out desperately for help to their own gods. And the ones who claim to know the one true God are sometimes guilty of falling asleep. It may be my cultural upbringing that I seem to be more observant of these things that are happening in our city than most people. We just had the month of Ramadan when Muslims fast all through the day from sunrise to sunset. And I've had extended conversations with a number of them. They don't complain about it. They call it a gift. And honestly, I'm humbled by their passion and commitment to their religion. People of the Sikh faith held a parade in the northeast part of Calgary that had close to 50,000 people marching through the streets. And this happens every year in our city. And in a week from now, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, a new age group with Hindu roots, is planning a big event in downtown Calgary. You know, add to all that, there are thousands of Calgarians who have made money, entertainment, and pleasure as their gods, and they worship them day in and day out. So what we see is people all around us seeking for spiritual help, but the problem is their gods cannot save. They are helpless. And we who have a personal relationship with the living God cannot afford to sleep in times like these. The church cannot be silent amidst a desperate, hurting world. And that is why the Spirit of God is calling the church in Canada to wake up, to arise and shine and be a beacon of hope in these last days before Jesus returns. Threatened by the storm, the sailors decided to cast lots. And God demonstrates his sovereignty yet again as the lots fell on Jonah. 
Now look at the perplexed questions of the sailors in verse 8. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? The anxious sailors, in their desperation, fired a barrage of questions at Jonah. And Jonah's response is classic. He hides himself behind pious verbiage. Verse 9, this is Jonah's response. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah acknowledges here that he worshiped the creator God, the God who is the master over the land and the sea. This is not a territorial God with limited authority. This is a God with no limitations. He is sovereign, he is powerful, he is able, and all forces of nature are subject to him. Jonah knew all this. He got his theology right. He is conservative in his beliefs. But those beliefs were not translated into actions. For who thought it was a good idea to flee from a God like this? Can you actually outrun the one who is the Lord over land and sea? Do you think you can thwart his plan and his purposes? Jonah didn't realize you can run away from God, but you can never outrun him because he is present everywhere. I want to get a bit practical here and share with you from real-life examples of people running from God. Not long ago, I met with a, a man from the Sikh faith, and these were his words to me. The last two years, God is drawing me to the Christian faith. I've been avoiding him all along because my family will turn against me, but Jesus will not let go. He keeps drawing me to himself. And he stepped into a church for the very first time and attended our worship services just a few weeks ago. There are people like that who are not followers of Christ yet, and they are running away from God's offer of salvation. And God is patiently trying to get their attention. But like Jonah, even people of faith can at times be guilty of running from God. We may not abandon God altogether, but sometimes we refuse to submit to God's plan for a particular area of our life or an issue we are dealing with. When God commands you to do something that you don't like, how do you respond to it? You know what most responses look like? We may not say it verbally, but we act that way. God, I want you to stay away from this area of my life because I'm determined to do it my way. Please don't interfere with my affairs. No matter how many times God prompts you, you ignore those calls. And as a pastor, I regularly talk to Christians who are running away from God's assignments, trying to avoid God in a specific area of their life. They like everything else the Bible says, except this one thing which counters with their way of doing things, 
and they will not budge. When you're dating the wrong person, you know you are out of alignment with God's plan for your life. But you give in to the strong feelings you have for the other person rather than God's still small voice. When you make poor financial choices that can lead you into debt, you know you're not being a good steward of God's resources, but you refuse to do your finances God's way. Your marriage may have hit rock bottom. People all around you know that it's headed for a disaster. But you keep pretending everything is all right and refuse to seek for help. Maybe you have a problem with anger. It's going out of bounds, and God is getting your attention in that area, but you're ignoring Him. Maybe God calls you to share your faith with a neighbor, a family member, a friend, or a co-worker, but you've been avoiding it for quite a long time. We all are guilty of running from God in one area or other of our life. When we get off course, God gives you a wake-up call. He gets your attention through His Word, through a sermon, through His promptings, through the counsel of a Christian friend, or through life circumstances. But when you continue to deviate from that path God has laid out for you, and you insist on going your own way, you experience divine interruptions. It's meant to cut short your journey on the sea of disobedience and bring you back on your knees. Now, here's the most important thing you need to understand. God's discipline is not an expression of His hate. It's an expression of His love. The love of a good father for his children. The purpose of loving correction is to spare you from greater pain that you're bound to bring upon yourself because of the path in which you're traveling. Hebrews 12 verse 11 tells us, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Sometimes God designs painful experiences to change our direction, to bring us back to alignment with His plans. So what do you do when you are in the midst of experiencing a divine correction? This should be a response. Firstly, stop living in denial and take responsibility for your actions. Because nothing is going to change in your life as long as you fail to step up and take responsibility. Secondly, surrender your life to God and choose the path of obedience. Every Christian should be able to say this to God. God, you're in charge of my life, and I'm willing to do whatever you ask of me. Remember this, whatever you're withholding from God will become the source of your discontent. 
And no life is more secure than a life that is fully surrendered to God. When you learn to respond rightly to God's corrections, His wake-up calls, even though you may be on a detour, God knows how to recalibrate your path and bring you to the destination that He has in mind for you. Going back to the story, Jonah and the sailors were caught in this furious storm, and the storm intensified in force. The sailors asked Jonah what they needed to do. And look at Jonah's reply. This is very interesting. Verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Why would Jonah make such a strange request? God didn't ask Jonah to step off the ship and fall into the water. We're going to find out what was the motivation behind it. See, Jonah admits his fault, takes responsibility for his actions, yet does not show any signs of repentance. The rightful response here should have been, take me to the nearest port, and I need to be on my way to Nineveh. Instead, he says, throw me into the raging sea. I was responsible for the storm, and I have to die. And Jonah would make such a request because he did not know something. God prefers mercy over judgment. Rather than clinging to God's mercy, Jonah passes a death sentence on himself. And in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, we see an amazing miracle unfold. The pagan sailors get to see the power of God. As they reluctantly throw Jonah into the storm, they pray to God for forgiveness. Look at verses 14 to 16. And they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The first prayer to come to the living God in this book comes not from the mouth of the prophet, from the pagan sailors. You know, whenever you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital in your Bible, that's a reference to Yahweh, the personal name that God revealed to Moses. So the sailors earlier feared the storm, but now they stand in reverential awe of Yahweh. They worship the Creator God. Now think about this. If God could save people through Jonah's disobedience, how much more he could do if Jonah were to obey. I was talking to a couple from our church recently named Rudy and Judith. And I heard this amazing story of how Rudy came to faith in Christ in a ship when he was a sailor. 
And it happened because the captain of that ship, unlike Jonah, was being obedient to God's call for his life. And so many themes that I've touched on today were played out in this couple's life story. So let's take this time to watch this video, the life change story of Rudy and Judith. I was a sailor for many years, and even now, when I'm near the water, my past blood back to me. There are many hardships living on the ocean. One of the most difficult times is enduring the many storms. Giant waves would rock our ship, back and forth making it impossible to sleep or even eat. You feel powerless, afraid and alone. I was surrounded by a lot of sins while being a sailor. All the partying, drunkenness, and women was commonplace on our ship. But it left me feeling empty and wondering if there wasn't more to life. I married my wife Judith in 2005, and soon I found balancing a family and a life on the sea is extremely difficult. You spend a year away, then you get a few months at home before you have to return to the ship. It is quite depressing and lonely. I grew up believing in God, but never had a personal relationship with Him. It was more of a tradition than a real faith. I faced many hardships. My father died when I was only 17. Left with nothing but debts, our family struggled to survive. The pain of his death never left me. I was a broken person. This brokenness followed me into my marriage. For years, I struggled with being a failure in my career and in a marriage where I barely got to see Rudy because he was often away at sea. Eventually, I sunk into a deep depression and started to withdraw from most important people in my life. It was on my fifth ship that I had the chance to work with the new captain. He was one of the nicest and kindest person I had ever met and was always worshiping the Lord through songs and prayers. One thing I found truly amazing is there was no storms or bad weather during that voyage. Also, the ship was never detained by the Port Authority, which was a real occurrence. Some of my co-workers had also commented on how smooth our voyage was going. There was something different about this journey. I just did not know what it was yet. One day, the captain invited the crew to a Bible study. I decided to join. Next thing you know, I was reading the Bible every night. Out of the seas, God was reaching out to me, rescuing me from the storm of my life. Eventually, I obey and give my life to Him. When Rudy returned home, something was different about him. First of all, he was carrying around a Bible that had highlighted many verses. He told me his captain had encouraged him to turn his life to God. 
it was evident by the changed life that he had. I, however, was still running from God. At that same time, one of my friends began to share her faith in Christ with me. Slowly, my heart began to soften. I began to read the Bible and found that there was life in its pages. It truly spoke to me. God was starting to get my attention. I stopped running away and surrendered my life to Him. God helped me overcome all the hurt and pain I had been carrying since my father's death. The sadness and emptiness was finally gone. Through my hardships, I found peace. When we look back on our lives, it is evidence God had been pursuing us always, even though we ignore His calling or run away from Him. In the midst of our storms, God gave us a wake-up call and He was there to rescue us. Everything's happened for a reason. God drew us to Himself and we give glory to His name for that. Life isn't always perfect, but with God in it, Rudy and I found what we had been missing. He rescued us. What a powerful story. Rudy and Judith now are community group leaders in our church, and their lives are a great blessing to so many people. We go back now to Jonah, and Jonah is still in the depth of disobedience. His heart is still defiant towards God. In asking the sailors to throw him into the sea, Jonah was saying he would rather die than go to Nineveh in obedience to God. That's how rebellious his heart was. From Jonah's point of view, that was the end. The curtains had come down. It was all over. But it's not over until God says it's over. For God, in his grace, does not let Jonah die. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God's amazing provision came unexpectedly through a large fish. It's not a whale. The Bible doesn't say it's a whale. It's a giant fish that swallowed Jonah. So the next time I speak, we're going to take a closer look at this uh, miraculous deliverance. But I have an assignment for you before you leave today. You looked at the 50-foot uh, giant fish tunnel in our atrium. I want you to walk through the tunnel because it's the closest you and I will get to experience what Jonah experienced, hopefully. And then you go home and read Jonah chapter 2. And I tell you, you will have a unique appreciation for this chapter of the Bible. Hear this in closing. Do you know what sets the Christian faith apart? Kyle Eidelman writes in his book, God's at War, if someone ever asks you, what's so special about Christianity? What sets it apart from Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, or anything else? Your answer is found right here 
Nowhere else do we find God in hot pursuit of people. Eidelman goes on to say, this is a God who gives us the freedom to say no, but insists on giving us every possible conceivable chance to say yes. He has been called the hound of heaven because he never gets off the trail. The book of Jonah serves as a window into the heart of God. God did not need Jonah to accomplish his plans. You need to understand this. God could have let Jonah reach Tarshish safely and live the rest of his life in disobedience. Or God could have punished Jonah and caused him to drown in the deep ocean. God could have found 100 other prophets who could have gone to Nineveh and delivered a far better message than Jonah. But that's not the God we serve. He loved Jonah in spite of his rebellion, and God's desire was to bring Jonah back into relationship. So more than the emphasis on God saving a big city, much of the focus of the book is about God's patience and perseverance with one struggling believer. God goes extraordinary lengths to rescue a man from his destructive, rebellious will. Now here's a danger when you've been a Christian for a number of years. You start thinking God is more interested in what you do for him rather than being interested in you. And that, of course, is not true. God takes great delight in you, and your relationship with him is of utmost importance to him. So that is why when we run in the opposite direction... Sometimes God has to shake us a little. Sometimes he has to give us a nudge. Sometimes it's a strong prompting. And sometimes he hurls a storm. The wake-up calls are intended to get us back on track because God loves you and wants the best for you. And today, if you sense God is giving you a wake-up call, don't wait any longer. Don't wait for the weather to get worse. Let this day be the day of your surrender. Remember this. No life is more secure than a life fully surrendered to God. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. Would you take this moment to just close your eyes and maintain a moment of silence and reflect on what you heard, what the Holy Spirit has impressed on your heart. Some of you here, you are running away from God's offer of salvation. He's been very patient with you but you are ignoring him all along. I pray that today will be the day you will give your life to God. There are some of us here who are running from God in a specific area of your life. If that is you, I pray 
that you will be able to make an unconditional surrender and rededicate your life to God again. So let's maintain a moment of silence and allow the Holy Spirit to do a deep work in every heart. And after a moment of silence, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, in these moments of silence, we look up to you. We thank you for being so gentle with us. Your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. God, we are here today because of your grace, because you pursued us even when we were far from you. We thank you for your saving grace. Your love doesn't let us go. God, I pray for every person here that we will experience the joy of surrender, the security that comes from the assurance that you hold our life in your hands. God, help us not to withhold anything from you, but walk with you in the path of obedience to partner with you in your plans and purposes for our life. That none of us will walk away from the great future that you have in mind for us, but we will walk in alignment with you. Continue to deal with us, Lord, the rest of this week. Speak to us, challenge us, convict us. Above all, I pray that you'll help us to understand your love, your grace, and your generous heart. Even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.